2: This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast
3: series. Hello, you're very welcome to The Tonight Show. Derelict Ireland, what can be done to revive the country's vacant properties? And is a property tax on these homes the answer? Ukraine, three months on, we take a look at how the country is coping with war and how refugees in Ireland are settling in.
4: I see my life now in, in Ireland was a the next, minimum, next five years. I don't think that war will be uh, shorter than five years.
3: And passport chaos while thousands wait, the Department of Foreign Affairs says admin errors are to blame.
5: We know that of those in the backlog at the moment, in terms of first-time passports, 43% of them have a problem in terms of the, the forms that have been filled out.
3: Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions on hashtag We begin with some breaking news this evening from the United States. At least 14 students and one teacher have been killed in a shooting at a primary school in Texas. That is according to the Texas governor, Greg Abbott. It happened in the city of Uvalde near San Antonio. We will, of course, bring you more on this story as we get it. Take a drive through any town or village in Ireland and you are sure to see it. Empty properties, vacant houses strewn along streets, just one symbol of Ireland's creaking housing system. Today, an Aracta's committee published a report aimed at tackling the issue. A key recommendation was the introduction of a vacant property tax. But how will it work? And is it really the way to tackle this problem? Well, to discuss this, I am joined by architect and broadcaster Hugh Wallace, Green TD and chair of That Aracta's housing committee, Stephen Matthews, and Labour Senator Rebecca Moynihan, also a member of the Housing Committee. And I'm joined on Skype by Killian Woods, Senior Business Reporter at the Business Post. You're all very welcome to the programme. Uh, Killian, I'm going to go to you first. When we talk about vacant or derelict houses or sites, what exactly are we talking about here?
6: Well, that's the definition I think a lot of politicians have been wrestling with for a while. Like, what can we define as derelict, vacant, and, you know, completely abandoned properties? And that's what I think what the reports good today is that we're looking trying that the government or the committee is trying to set that out and what that would actually mean. So there does seem to be ranges in what is, like, what, what sort of properties are abandoned or derelict or vacant. It could be vacant and it's refurbished and ready to go. It could be derelict to a degree where the roof has fallen fallen in and it's completely unusable and abandoned just where you know, there's no no possibility of completely redoing the house it needs to be demolished or the property needs to be demolished and completely revamped. So I think that's what we're actually, That's it's been a problem with getting an actual vacant or property, uh, a vacant home or property tax in because a lot of people can't agree on what exactly they're looking to solve here and what look, issues they're looking to try and get with, with this tax and what sort of homes, what sort of properties they're looking to bring back into use.
3: And also, Colleen, I think they've struggled to get an idea of the numbers involved here, the scale of this issue. We've heard 137,000, I think, is the number the committee put in that report, but that is disputed, isn't it?
6: That's the problem that we have a range of uh, figures at the moment. Geo Directory, which is a subsidiary of Unpust, that does look quite comprehensive research into vacant property in Ireland, and you know how many of homes are actually vacant and how many homes, how many. Above property, they're above shops. They're empty. They would estimate at ninety thousand. That's their most recent report. What we have from CSO then. Is that they say 180,000 in the last census? I think there's a revised figure. If you know, if 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 we're on track to reduce that, uh, uh, you know, scaling it down from the last census to the current one, it would fall in about the 137,000 property. But again, we're down to what the definition of vacant is: are those derelict? Are they vacant, ready to go? Or is it is it just the lights are turned off and someone could move in there tomorrow? That's a big problem we have with tracking this. And one of the main recommendations of the report today for the committee was that we need to start tracking this sort of data better because we do have very bad in
3: Ireland. Uh, are we to assume that the properties that we're talking about are all privately owned? Or can we even make that assumption? Not as it-
6: yeah, not necessarily and, and that's the problem that, that's what came to light when when they were looking at the last vacant site levy which is very different that's about specifically sites that could be used to build housing on when that was brought in place in 2016 and the notices started to be handed out for the notices started to be handing out handed out for you know issuing penalties for those sites it emerged mm-hmm. that local authorities and the state bodies like you know the HSE and the like, Mead, Mead County Council Dublin not County Council not trying to draw anyone in just basically your basic local authorities and state bodies they were actually the owners of these sites that were gone dare or were vacant and completely um, underused for what they could be done for. So it is actually not just private properties, it's not just the holiday home that they're trying to go after here, it's not just you know the empty building that's owned by a company. This is also a state bodies we wrapped up in this.
3: All right, I just want to go to our panel here because, Hugh, we clearly don't know the numbers here, 90,000, 137,000, 180,000, but tens of thousands, it appears. Why do we have so many in this country?
1: Um, well, I think there's a whole load of issues going on. So I toured yesterday, I went to Templemore, I went to Thurles, Cashel and Clonmel, And all of these towns in their city centres and in their centres have vacant properties over shops or derelict shops. And that has to do with a whole load of economical circumstances to date. But we need to address this issue because there's a huge resource, particularly when we talk about sustainability, Unfortunately, I've had a look at today's report and it doesn't go far enough. And in fact, it's not going to assist people who own buildings because of the cost of renovation.
3: Yeah, because the condition of these properties, as we said, we're not quite sure how many of these are are turnkey. We presume very few of them. Correct. And are a lot of them beyond saving? Would they
1: need to be demolished and rebuilt? No, not at all. Particularly if you go... I'll take Temple Moor. Sorry to Temple Moor, but I just thought it was such a treat of a town, and deserves better. But so many of the properties on the first floor are vacant. But all those properties need to be rewired, replumbed, brought up to part out in terms of energy, of the building regulations, put in fire certs, you know, make them fire compliant. And by the time you've done all that, the actual funds that are available in terms of grant are wholly inadequate to do up these properties.
3: Yeah, and yet, uh, Stephen Matthews, uh, Minister Dara O'Brien, the Minister for Housing, confirmed yesterday, I think he was speaking to News Talk, that this vacant property tax will be introduced in the next budget. So two problems, one of which is we have no idea the scale to start with. And second of all, it's just too expensive for a lot of people to put these properties back on the market.
7: Yeah, let's address those two concerns then. So it's all about gathering the data, and that's one of the primary recommendations in the report. We have a whole lot of data sets out there. We have a whole lot of organisations collecting data. We have data returns from the LPT returns that are going to be due in. We've recently had a census, so we'd expect the returns back in from that with the old census data. We have uh, um, websites such as vacanthomes.ie, where members of the public can report vacant properties. We've work being done by the Heritage Council in the Town Centre Health Checks. So we've all these different data sets out there, and it's important to pull it all together. We recommend a dedicated Unit within the Department of Housing, uh, local government and heritage to concentrate solely on vacancy and dereliction. So we pull all that data together and we've got that good data set. If you can't measure something, you can't manage it. And that's key here. Whether the figures are 137,000 or 90,000, if we look at a a comparable vacant homes tax like what was introduced in Vancouver in Canada, it freed up about 26% of that vacant property. So even if we were to take the lowest figure of 90,000 and and be very conservative on our figures on it, and we were to free up uh, 25% of that, similar to Vancouver, that's still a substantial amount of property we would bring on stream, providing homes and housing for people much needed. The costs, you referred to... What happened
3: to, to the 75% then that weren't made available?
7: I don't know what happened to that. But, I mean, if we could bring in 25% of them, I think that would be key. Instead of leaving the they idle, just
3: taxed? The 75% is left taxed? I,
7: I presume if you're wealthy enough to pay a tax and keep your home vacant, your home remains vacant.
1: So, well, I don't think it's about having enough money to pay the tax. The actual issue is I don't have enough money to refurbish the property, but you're going to tax me. So, and I don't think that's correct, Stephen. I think we have to have a balanced approach here. You're quite correct, and you, we do have a reasonable approach. But today, if but you rewire a house, you don't it's twenty five thousand. Well, to put in plumbing is twenty five thousand. I have to insulate the house. I have to fix the roof. Put in new windows, and there's my bill of one hundred and fifty thousand, of which I have the luxury to pay the government thirteen and a half percent in VAT. Which I think is as you do with building any house, you have to come in and there should be no VAT. I think there should be no VAT for first time buyers or for people doing construction to actually develop homes. The
7: cost involved in bringing and refurbishing properties back can be prohibitive for people who want to develop those second and third storeys. We have a very onerous and difficult regulatory process there. There's about three or four certificates you have to go through in FARCert, accessibility cert. Uh we've, we've brought in planning exemptions on it as well, but you've also then got to we have the self-certification. So it is quite expensive when you're looking at those smaller ones. OK, so, so
3: let's just look at the tax for a second, OK, before we talk about how people might be able to avoid that tax, which is obviously bringing the property back onto the market. Um, Rebecca, the Labour Party has been in favour of this tax for some time Put a figure on it. Well, what they did in Vancouver, they started at 1%, then they went up to
8: 3% and I think next year it's going to 5%, uh, which as Stephen says, it brought about 25% of properties back into use. Sometimes people have properties or ha- have land that are there and lying vacant. They can't afford um, to do them up but in that case you should be able to put them on the market to sell them for somebody else who can do it and bring it back into use as a, ho- as a home. There is no excuse for vacancy and dereliction in our towns And cities. And if you look here, are you
3: advocating then 1% this year? 3% 3% next year, 5% the year after? We didn't put a specific figure on it. What I'm saying is... Why not? From, from, from is that not very o-
8: important? From, from other examples um, of other countries that have done this, what they had is they had a rolling tax. So they had 1%, they had uh, 5%, or five five percent or 3% and then they go up to 5%. With the vacant sites levy and with the proposed zoned land tax, that's going to be the same. It's going to be um, um, going upwards as years go on. But I think it's important to say dereliction is both about homes and bringing homes back into use. But it's also about our towns and cities, and what we're seeing is dereliction sucking the life out of our towns and cities. And areas like, for example, the northwest of the country is particularly affected um, by dereliction. But it's also particularly affected by lack of rental properties that are there. And in the middle of a housing crisis, there is no excuse for le- for, for leaving residential properties that could be no used. excuse whatsoever. So are you saying no exemptions to this? No, of course there will be ex- exemptions. But if you can bring something back into. You, Use, it should be brought back into use. Okay, just because that's why there was
3: exemptions, because there will be people watching this evening who have a property, perhaps have an elderly relative who's in you know nursing care, or have a property that they're hoping to be able to renovate in a couple of years and perhaps as their pension. The, the, are they yeah, are they the properties the, that should be exempted? Yes, yeah, the report is clear in that um, for exemptions for where,
8: for example, there's issues of probate or where there's issues of people who are in, in fair deal. This is where. Um, properties are left vacant for a very, very long time um, and nobody is bringing them back into okay, use. OK, Some, but- s- s- Somebody owns them. They could be used as a home for somebody else, but they are there and they're left vacant. But- and we see them around this country all
3: over. OK, but again, we have no idea why those properties uh, are being left vacant. And is there any sort of uh, plan within the plan that was published today to find out why people have left these houses
7: That I was think- one of the key yeah.
3: recommendations.
7: As Again, well. it's about the data gathering as yeah. well. To know, to, to have a score condition on buildings out there as well. We have a derelict sites register as well. We need to bring that information about vacancy as well. The condition of that, is it habitable? Does it need small amounts of work? Is it, is it absolutely derelict and, and, and uninhabitable? Okay. But the very... reasonable exemptions, and I'm glad you brought yeah. that up because there has to be reasonable exemptions on this. So if it's a holiday home, I would say that's a reasonable exemption. If it's somebody in care, I would say that's a reasonable exemption. If it's your primary residence and you're working abroad for large periods of the year, that's a reasonable exemption. So I think we need to tease those out. But again, it's not, you know, if you take this figure of 137,000 and say, oh, you won't get them all, throw out that idea. That's ridiculous. I'm just house, Stephen, that we uh,
3: already have a vacant site levy in this country yeah, that was introduced a, a, in 2016. A complete failure.
7: A complete failure. So full of loopholes, uh, so full of uh, opportunities to appeal it at every stage. There's 21 million euro in vacant site levies. There's only about 1% of it has been collected. Well, why hasn't so it been
3: not Why doesn't the government suggest that we look
8: at that first? So the vacant well, we, sites levy also applies to sites, whereas what we're talking about is a vacant property, ta- vacant property tax and, and it, this is to bring some homes back into use. So they're, they're two separate things, it, local authorities... It's, but it's the same yeah.
3: principle. It is the same principle. You're putting a tax or a levy on something that is vacant, whatever we just define could as piece, vacant. Yeah. And I'm saying that the vacant levy has not worked. Why it do hasn't. you believe this works?
7: Derelict sites levy hasn't worked. Vacant sites levy hasn't worked. It hasn't been applied properly. It hasn't been collected. 21 million in vacant site levies, 1% collected. Five and a half who's million... Whose fault is that then? Five and season? a half million in derelict sites levy and 378,000 collected by the local authorities... We would propose to change those to taxes and have revenue deal with it. So, have the local authorities and others gathering the data and have revenue apply that taxation. That to me makes a more reasonable and sensible
3: way to approach that. About the sort of the carrot and the stick here, because we clearly have the stick, uh, which is the tax. What's the carrot that needs to be there? Well, the um, carrot is
1: is we need to have the Living City Initiative rolled out in 2015, which was a brilliant scheme where if you worked on your house, You had a rebate of all the money you spent over a 10-year period. And that should be initiated throughout the country in every town and village. But that, in fact, failed. And in Cork over the past seven years, there's been 42 properties. That's all have been completed under the scheme. And that's because of bureaucracy, Mm. paperwork, trying to shove building control legislation and regulations for new build into old property which is more than 200 years old and i think when you talk about was it toronto vancouver vancouver, vancouver. Yeah. so you have to look at vancouver and you have to look at the age of the properties in vancouver and the age of the properties in ireland and in ireland there's substantially older and therefore require more funds to renovate them.
3: Okay, Uh, Killians, was there any um, discussion today about those funds, about those grants that might be made available to people to, you know, get their properties into a state where they might be able to use them or rent them or bring them back onto the market?
6: Yeah, I think that's what the report recommended as well, was getting to a stage where you there's a better awareness for what is out there. You know, you They recommend the Living Cities mm-hmm. Initiative been expanded. There's also the repair and lease scheme, which people mm-hmm. can go to their local authorities and, and say I have this property, I'm willing to lease it back to the council if, I'm, if there is money there to repair it. And then they, they would retain ownership of it and actually turn it into an asset that is producing money for them. And so there was, there was limited talk today about what, and in the report, about what could be done for the owners. I think though we're we are seeing probably to a stage where, it's the, the report acknowledges it's you, we there's, a, there's certain digits that will have to be given to help people incentivize to get the, get these homes okay. back into use. But the vacancy and dereliction issue has gone so far out of control in Ireland like some of these properties are vacant fifteen, twenty years. Some in the city centre of Dublin, you know, I think there's not there is recognition that it's unacceptable. That some of the property owners, regardless of the problems they've had, have fallen into this issue because there's no problem with selling property in a city centre at the moment. So anyone who has no money to do up a property should have no problem selling it. And that is is the nub of it. There is absolutely no... You have yeah, to have the money the nub, to be able to do up, that's up that, that property. And, that's where, and, and that's where lack of sympathy will probably come from for property owners at the moment, is that there's just no excuse for not selling and flipping and selling on the site if you cannot do something with it. Um,
3: do you think... Do you agree with Cillian there? Look, there's no excuse for having a property if you can't afford to do it up? you should be made to sell it. Do you agree with that principle?
7: It's, it's not in public interest to have a building vacant and empty during a housing crisis. We need to bring every bit of stock back in to use. We need to encourage people, we need to incentivise them, or we need to use the stick, which will be the tax as well. And you and the sell it. If you,
3: just, just very quickly, we talked about the repair and lease mm-hmm. scheme there. It's up to 60000 I think, is available in that 60, scheme. 60000
7: We recommend increasing that in line with inflationary costs as well in, in the report.
3: And did you put any upper limit on that?
7: No, we didn't, because these are all uh, uh, recommendations for the department and others to consider. So we, we brought in expertise, this is what we looked at. We didn't uh, uh, put exact figures on it as well. The Cree-Connoha uh, Town and Village Fund as well, that's going to be bringing in a grant system for people who wish to purchase an older property and do it up as well. Oh, I don't right. have the exact figures on that. But, you know, there's a number of measures that need to be taken here. But we definitely need to address the amount of dereliction and vacancy okay. in, during the housing crisis.
3: All right, my thanks to Hugh Wallace, Stephen Matthews, Rebecca Moynihan and Killian Woods. We're going to have to leave that uh, subject there for the moment. I'm sure we'll come back to it again. Uh, up next, the war in Ukraine, three months on, from the horrors on the ground to the refugee crisis it has created. This was the scene in Ukraine three months ago today when Russia first invaded and bombarded the country. That war was supposed to be quick, but things haven't turned out that way. Fierce resistance and support from around the world changed the dynamics of the war and 90 days later, Vladimir Putin is focused on territories in the east of the country. But despite that turnaround, the invasion has of course taken its toll. The war caused millions to flee, with thousands ending up on our shores. Virgin Media News reporter Tanya Wright caught up with one family readjusting to life
9: here in Ireland. A moment of true joy when Hanna and her two children see the face of their father and husband on the screen.
1: This is my dad.
9: Yuri is back home in Ukraine. When they call him, he is just after buying supplies of ammunition for the Ukrainian fighters in Donbas. Polina is asking her father whether it's safe where he is. Relatively safe was his reply. The family has been living in Dublin for over two months sharing a hotel room provided by the state. They escaped Kyiv soon after the first Russian missile struck in the early hours of the 24th of February.
4: Nobody could imagine that we have to relocate in such circumstances. I would prefer to travel here like a tourist, not like a refugee.
9: 21-year-old Bolina remembers the first morning of the war very clearly. A journalist she was up at five a.m. to finish an article before the deadline. After hearing loud bangs outside, she rushed to wake up her family to deliver the terrifying news.
4: This is the most terrible words you can say to your mom at the morning. Like get up, the like the war started.
9: Going back to the first days of the war isn't easy for the young woman. That weekend, Polina and her boyfriend were planning a getaway trip to Poland. It wasn't meant to happen. The couple hasn't seen each other for three months, as Ivan remained in Ukraine. Hanna had been preparing for the war for months, but didn't expect an
4: attack on the capital. We didn't know that it will start from Kiev. Even uh, I knew that war will start soon. It was a shock for me.
9: A handful of family photos was almost everything they could bring from home. A photo album from Crimea has a special place in their hearts, bringing back warm memories. Their last trip there was in 2011, three years before the peninsula was annexed by Russia. We talked about the history of the family, which has Ukrainian, Jewish, Tatar and Russian blood. We are mixed families. Whom are they trying to denazify? Hannah is rhetorically asking me. So far, up to 30,000 people displaced by the war in Ukraine have found peace and safety here in Ireland. Whether it's temporary or permanent, no one knows. For many, it feels like being in limbo. Their minds and hearts are back home, but they are trying to make long-term plans here in Ireland. After three months of the war back home, there's little hope that it will be over anytime soon.
4: Hannah is bracing for a long war. I see my life now in, in Ireland for the next, minimum next five years. I don't think that war will be uh, shorter than five years. Starting all over at 45
9: could be a challenge, but Hannah is about to start a new position at an Irish bank.
4: Now I'm mm, full of hopes uh, to rebuild my uh, broken uh, career, my broken life. Broken friendships
9: is another painful byproduct
4: of war. Most of Serhii's Ukrainian school friends
9: are now scattered across Europe. Getting used to the new life and new classmates in Dublin is still hard for the 15-year-old.
0: Я смотрел фотографии, я немного прослезился. Ну, мне очень плохо стало в этот момент и периодически и I я вспоминаю какие-то фрагменты своей жизни с прошлого года,
9: The power of art creates some sort of normality, just as back home the team continues to paint, even if it has to be in a hotel room. Polina is a frequent visitor on Trinity campus. She's hoping to study here one day after graduating online from the National University of Kiev. Uh,
4: I see myself the library over there.
9: But for now, not a day goes by for Polina without thinking about Mariupol and the Azov-style plant. We spoke just a few days before the Ukrainian defenders of the steelworks laid down arms. She was almost apologetic about her own safety.
4: I didn't see the fears of uh, war as much as these people did. I I escaped uh, war very, very fastly. But the pain I feel for people of my country, I can't imagine what they're going through. I can't imagine this.
9: Amid the darkness of the ongoing war, hopes remain.
4: We are such a strong nation. I think that the future of Ukraine is bright. Uh, I know that.
3: Tanya Wright there with that report for us. I'm joined in studio by Chairman of the Shanid, Senator Mark Daly, and by Donica Obiekan, Professor of Politics at the School of Law and Government in DCU. You're both very welcome to the programme. And Mark, you were actually in Ukraine uh, at the weekend. You met uh, President Zelensky. Um, what did he ask you for?
0: Well, he had a number of clear asks and it was obvious that they don't have a single transferable speech that they give to every visiting delegation. They understand each country's position clearly. They talked about the issue of Irish neutrality, respected that position, but then asked us to be advocates, myself and the Ciancola of Dal and Sean O'Friel, who accompanied uh, me on the trip, and asked us to be advocates for Ukraine's membership of the European Union. And this is a ripple diplomacy effect where we have pledged to go back to Ireland to write to all our counterparts across the European Union and ask them then to write to their members of their parliaments to actively seek for the governments of their respective countries to be uh, supportive of the membership of the Ukraine to uh, the European Union. As well as that, they also asked us that we would seek for each European country to adopt regions of the Ukraine into uh, to support rebuilding each part of their shattered country. but they also pointed out that over three hundred thousand square kilometers of Ukraine were occupied by Russian forces, and they are now finding booby traps in things like domestic appliances so Women who've opened up the dishwasher will find that there's a grenade in there and people have been killed. Uh, children's pianos have grenades attached to them when the lids are opened, that they will explode. So now they have to go house by house through all of the occupied territories uh, that were under Russian control and actually have to search everything. So they've asked for us to be of assistance in that. Um, and they've also asked for us to use our influence in the United States, which they're aware of. Uh, and President Zelensky talked about his time in Ireland. So we we discussed uh, with him the issues that we could help in for 40 minutes. And he, you know, made those clear asks, as did the Speaker of the Parliament in Kiev, as did the Prime Minister. So they they. they put us to our paces in terms of discussing the various issues, uh, but they had very clear asks on what we could do to assist.
3: Uh, Donica, as we said, it is three months since the invasion started. Where are we at at this point?
5: Well, we've we've learned a lot. Um, You know, before this war started, Russia had the reputation for being the second best army in the world. Now it's revealed that it's the second best army in Ukraine, um, you know, because it hasn't achieved what it wanted to achieve. It thought this war would be over in three days. As you say, now we're at three months. It's been counterproductive in so many ways, um, and of course, there's been huge human loss as well. But I mean, Russia was expecting minimal losses. They've acquired, according to the Ukrainians, up to thirty thousand. They've lost seven generals. It was called ostensibly to prevent NATO from expanding eastwards, and now we've seen Finland and Sweden saying that they're going to join. So that very on, much
3: backfired for Putin. Very much didn't
5: backfired. It? But the big, I think threat now to Ukraine is is our collective indifference, um, because there's a natural tendency, and, you know, three months is, is a long time for a population and a media to be, you know, following a thing intimately. Um, and there's, there's a fear, I think, that, you know, for every atrocity, people will be, become more apathetic, that the, that the threshold will become higher for people to be outraged. I mean, 87 people were killed in a missile strike yesterday. Um, you know, 200 people were discovered uh, in an apartment block. Uh, basement today, but you didn't. You don't get the same saturation coverage as you did at the beginning of the war. And I think we have to stay focused on Ukraine. Ukraine deserves this. Uh, it's not just Ukraine's future. It's 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 Europe's future that's at stake. And if we can show a fraction of the the courage the determination and the heroism that the Ukrainian peoples have shown, then Ukraine will prevail, as it must.
3: Where are Russian now in terms of their attack? Where are they focused? What is their plan, do you think, going forward?
5: Well, it's, it's a revised plan. I mean, Putin has been saying all along that everything is going according to plan, but he's never outlined what that plan is. It's obviously a downsized plan because the plan was to decapitate Ukraine within days by taking Kiev. And they also attack Kharkiv. They've removed themselves now from around Kiev and Kharkiv, and they've, they've confined their assault to generally the Donbass region and the land corridor connecting to Crimea. But it's still an open page. It's very unpredictable. And Vladimir, as Vladimir Zelensky said yesterday at Davos that... Uh, They're looking at a very difficult few weeks ahead uh, because the most intense fighting is taking place right now in the Donbass region. Um, And and therefore, it's it's all the more important that, again, Ukraine gets the support that it needs. And that's the plea that he was making and, of course, made directly to Senator Daly.
3: Well, earlier I actually spoke to Aisling Reedy, Senior Legal Advisor at Human Rights Watch, about the alleged war crimes that are happening in Ukraine. And I began by asking her what her organisation has seen on the ground.
2: Well, um, I guess in the, uh, the number of months that we've now been uh, in Ukraine, the the scope and scale of uh, you know potential war crimes that we have seen and documented um, has been quite horrific. So I would say in the, the first uh, month or so, uh, our team on the ground, the primary things that were being documented were what I would call violations of the laws of war in terms of uh, targeting and attacks. So attacks that uh, used weapons that shouldn't have been used in civilian areas. So Russian forces on multiple attacks used cluster musicians, cluster munitions, which caused great harm to civilians. They carried out attacks, uh, which I think people will have seen on on the media, whereby the uh, civilians killed and the civilian buildings such as hospitals and schools that were hit were completely uh, unjustified in comparison to any military target that they were trying to hit. And then, as the conflict has gone on, our teams on the ground have been able to get access to locations where Russian troops uh, had occupied and have had spoken to witnesses and victims who were there um, during uh, Russian occupation. And um, in the last number of weeks, uh, we've been documenting quite horrific stories of summary executions, of enforced disappearances, of torture and uh, and of sexual assault, including rape. and then, of course, I think another thing which many people have been reading about is the forced transportation of many uh, Ukrainian citizens to Russian territory, both Russian controlled territory, and to Russia proper, um, which is a, a serious war crime and, and a violation of the Geneva Conventions. So, as I said, the, the range and scope of uh, violations that um, that we've been documenting right from the start of this war has been quite horrifying. Um, quite horrifying.
3: Ashley, do you expect any of the evidence that you've gathered to be used in war crime trials or indeed
2: to assist in those trials? Absolutely. I mean, that is one uh, one of the reasons that we do what we do. And I think that I think people need to recognize that there has never been this the, the focus for justice for war crimes in Ukraine has there's never been such an intense focus on justice. And there are not just the International Criminal Court, which had investigations going from the start, but the Ukrainian authorities themselves and several governments, Germany, Poland, Latvia, many governments in and around Europe um, have open investigations collecting evidence. And we know that often justice doesn't come very fast, but we also know that justice can also be delivered 5, 10, 15 years um, after hostilities have ended. And we've seen that happen in conflicts around the globe, including Darfur and Sudan, where there are currently trials um, at the International Criminal Court.
3: Ashley, I'm wondering if, if you have any concerns or worries about the rights of Ukrainian refugees who've had to flee the Ukraine or are now spread out right across Europe?
2: But yeah, this is another area which our, um, uh, our teams on the ground and our refugee towns are, are looking at. I mean, I will say, that I think, more and foremost, the response to Ukrainian refugees has been one of incredible kind of generosity and welcoming. And it would be nice to think that would be the standard setting for all refugees in future, because it certainly has not been the experience, unfortunately, of, of refugees from other countries.
3: Ashley, really, from Human Rights Watch there. I do um, was talking about, you know, collating evidence to be used in war crime trials. We've actually had our first war crime trial in the Ukraine and a young Russian soldier was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Does that have any deterrent effect, do you think, the threat of a war crime trial,
5: it it might have in the longer term for the individual soldier because I think a lot of the atrocities that were committed uh, during the opening days and weeks were were committed I think on the understanding that there would be certain impu- impunity um, and and that I think that, that kind of arrogance that came with this invasion of Ukraine is dissipating- because there would be victory. Exactly. And I think now that, that, that there is an, en- an end kind of in sight, perhaps, in terms of like, you know, people can see beyond. And, and, and it is now about collating the evidence um, because we have to play the long game here. This is, this is going to be a, a process rather than an event. And part of it will be bringing people to account. Uh, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow,
0: but eventually.
3: Um, Mark, you were shown what the Ukrainians are calling uh, evidence of Russian crimes. What did you see?
0: Well, we were brought out to Erpin, and, and we were shown by a parish priest in the adjoining town um, the mass graves and um, of his, and, and the people that were killed in his parish, uh, over 100 people, uh, and many were tortured in, in, in advance of their being killed and the uh, International Criminal Court have taken evidence and now those uh, graves have been uh, opened up and those bodies taken away. Uh, we've been asked to put the photographs that were taken... Uh, at that time on display in Leinster House. Again, part of that issue of keeping the awareness there because this is not just a war between Ukraine and Russia. This is a war for the European Union because if Russia wins here, this is not the end. This is just the beginning of a process and we have to support Ukraine in every way we can because if we don't do it now, if we don't bring in those sanctions now, which are going to hurt, in a time of growing inflation. If we don't take that pain now, then there's going to be more pain later. And it's not just going to be economic pain. Yeah, because
3: f- Sorry, speaking of those sanctions, sorry to cut across you, I just want to bring in Donika. What impact are they having on normal life in Russia?
5: On normal life, it's, it's still relatively limited. Um, it's, it's, it's not disrupting, you know, the day-to-day life. Uh, people have left. There have been thousands that have left, but still there isn't a huge amount of pain being felt. I mean, people now can't go to McDonald's or Starbucks. Those kind of things are, are being taken away, but that's, it, it's still going to take some time. I don't think sanctions are going to be a game-changer uh, in the short and medium term, it's more the long term isolation of Russia that's involved there. Alas, you know what kind of settlement emerges will be determined by by the battlefield. Um, but there are different fronts, and the economic front of course is one of those.
3: All right, we're going to have to leave it there. But my thanks to Danica and Mark for coming in to us. We're now going to go back to uh, the breaking news that we brought you at the start of the programme from the United States. At least 14 students and one teacher have been killed in a shooting at a primary school in Texas. Let's bring in news correspondent Simon Marks in Washington. Simon, what else can you tell us?
11: Well, Kira, it's just absolutely desperate news uh, and as bad as uh, we all feared when uh, we started getting these reports that the death toll could be uh, as high as 14. Now, Governor Greg Abbott of Texas confirming 14 primary school children and one teacher uh, were killed at the Robb Elementary School in Uvalde. Uh, That is uh, west of the city of San Antonio in southwest Texas. There's obviously a massive investigation and police response underway. Families now being contacted with the absolutely devastating news uh, that their children will not be coming home from school after the all clear is given. The 18-year-old suspect uh, was from Uvalde. He was a student at a local high school. He reportedly shot his grandmother to death before heading to the elementary school where his murderous rampage continued. He was killed at the scene. We don't know whether that was at his own hand or by police. uh, And we have no understanding yet of what his motivation was for this absolutely horrific atrocity.
3: It is absolutely horrific. uh, But unfortunately, Simon, it is the latest in a long line of gun violence in America in the last few weeks. And this was in the history of America where so many young school children have been targeted.
11: Yeah, I mean, we're 10 years after the attack on Sandy Hook Elementary School that left more than 25 uh, primary school children killed. That did nothing to give rise to any meaningful action on gun control. President Biden is on Air Force One now. He'll be landing in the United States in about three hours' time, returning to Washington from Asia. We are told that he will be addressing the nation tonight. Uh, This, of course, is a dramatic reminder for him that he wasn't able to put America's numerous domestic crises behind him with that trip to Asia. And remember that before he went to Asia, just a matter of uh, a week or so ago, he was in Buffalo up in New York meeting the victims, uh, the families of the 10 victims who were shot in what appears to have been a white supremacist rampage uh, by a teenage suspect who has now been charged uh, with murder and is facing a federal hate crimes investigation. How will President Biden tonight find the words to do what he knows he, he needs to do, which is to reinvigorate efforts on Capitol Hill to implement meaningful gun control in the United States. And yet that is impossible because the political calculus, 50-50, Republicans and Democrats in the Senate, it just hasn't shifted on Capitol Hill at all.
3: All right, uh, Simon Marks, thank you for giving us uh, that latest update. We will, of course, bring you any more news when we get it. Um, Our hearts and sympathies go out to those families. Lots more after this break. We take a look at the backlog of passports and how it is affecting thousands of people ahead of holiday season. Well, summer is on its way and with it the chance to travel abroad, something most of us haven't been able to do the last few years. But another problem may just curtail that. Thousands of people are still waiting on passports. Virgin Media News spoke to one such family earlier.
2: The stress it has caused in the last few weeks is just unbelievable. Families are just left sitting at home in limbo with no information, not knowing whether the children will attend whether they won't attend, whether another family member, obviously my husband would have to stay at home. On one particular day, I tried 322 times before I actually got speaking to somebody. And they just said, continue to follow the tracker online.
3: Well, Owen Corrie is the editor of Air and Travel magazine, and he joins me now. Owen, the scale of the problem, outline it
10: for us. It's... um the equivalent of two months of applications before COVID, all sitting on the intray, the virtual intray, waiting to be processed. About forty percent of the applicants there are, according to the DFA, have incomplete documentation. That's something like seventy-eight thousand passport applications. That's the population of County Kilkenny. So, what the DFA are dealing with, and this is not alone, but they're right across Europe. You know, if anyone follows foreign language uh, newspapers, it's an issue right across European countries because the number of people who let passports expire during COVID, when we weren't travelling, they're dealing with uh, a pretty big in tray, and they're quite, you know, much more confident in the statements of the last two weeks about getting through it but there are two sides to this and they bear no resemblance to each other the online renewal, which is more or less working, two weeks for an adult, three weeks for a child, and the new passport application, which not only is longer, it's six weeks, but it's also where all those problems of incomplete documentation are showing up.
3: And just to be clear, because I've done it very recently, when you're applying for a passport for the first time for a child, you can't just do it online. It's a combination of online and by a post. So I think the, the advice today to, you know, we need to move more people online, that's actually irrelevant People are playing for a new passport. New
10: passport online is irrelevant, and this is really important. It's a very powerful document. The Irish passport is one of the top six in the world. We get into one hundred and eighty-seven countries visa-free. Now we need—we that's hard one. Those stripes are hard one. So we need to preserve them. We need to preserve our reputation. So it does require a legal eye going over all that documentation and making sure, and in the era of child trafficking and all those concerns, really, really important that the document has got right with that first time application. And also with the renewals, because uh, people are coming back and saying, my, the computer allowed my uh, photograph to go through. Why did it suddenly get returned You know, at the end and put us back to the end of the queue? The the computer doesn't make the decision, the final decision of the photograph, a legal eye has to do that.
3: 40%, um, the DFA said, I have the statement here in front of me, a major cause for delays is the fact that passport applications are not correctly completed. Passport service figures show that consistently approximately 40% of applications are incomplete. But that means 60% of them are complete and there are still delays there.
10: The the delays on the complete aren't as long. For a first-time application, the delay has come down, even in the last couple of weeks, from eight weeks to six weeks. But when you've got that level of uh, passports that are incomplete, you start asking your questions, are the forms too complicated? Is it that complicated that forty percent of people are getting it wrong and getting the witnessing wrong and all of that? And the second, uh, important, easier question for the DFA to address is: Is it necessary to go to wait till it turns up on the entry before sending it back? Should there be a process where everybody goes through the documents first and said on the day they open it, say send it back instead of you know going to that six-week process? then sending it back. To identify if there's
3: any issues from the Any outset. issues,
10: and then start the six-week pre- Because it's not six weeks from when you send your application in. It's six weeks from when it gets opened at the other side.
3: And when that opening uh, happens and they ensure that all the documents are correct. If they're not, then you back and you start right. again. So you've waited
10: six weeks and then it goes to 12. And if it's coming back twice, which it has in a lot of cases, mm-hmm. it's going beyond.
3: Isn't one of the real difficulties here, Owen, is that people are finding it next to impossible, to communicate with yeah. the passport office.
10: There isn't really the volume of people to answer the phone or to even do things like answer to it. You know, phone answering of airlines, everybody like that, that's pretty much gone. Most, most communication now, if you want to get a response, you, you tweet, you direct message or you go on the web chat. Web chats are great because one operator handles. But the, all of those lines of communication to the DFA are broken down. Mm. And, and
3: of course, the passport office, which some people you know will know in Dublin, and used to be
10: able to go to, they that's have, still closed. Yeah, Why they, is that? They've never, they've never encouraged people to come in. I mean, since the whole online thing started and was very successful uh, five or six years ago, the notion of going into the passport office was only for the emergency appointment. And a big problem with the emergency appointment is that once you're in the system, you can't get out of the system to go for the emergency. Let's say the flight's looming, it's coming, you're coming within days of it. Now, a lot of people are getting it within days of their takeoff, so they are aware if it's in the documentation when you're flying.
3: All right, we're going to have to leave it uh, there. Thank you to own. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms and you can also now find us on Instagram tonight, VMTV. But from all the late team here, good night and do take care.